how will the 2020 election end game play out? And what should we expect in terms of policy and personnel from an eventual Biden administration? And then also, what's going to happen to Thanksgiving this year? Will it survive the era of woke and COVID? These subjects and more will be the subject of today's Independent Outlook. I'm Graham Walker, coming to you from the Independent Institute here in Oakland, California. We're on the edge of the bay, almost literally in the shadow of San Francisco. Uh, we exist here at the Independent Institute to provide an independent outlook on the issues of our day, rooted in respect for liberty and human dignity. Uh, today for Independent Outlook, I am joined by two of my colleagues. Uh, first, David Thoreau, founder and president of the Independent Institute. Thank you for joining us, David. Happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Also to have uh, Dr. Williamson Evers, who is the director of our Center on Educational Excellence. Thanks so much for joining us, Bill Evers. Thank you for having me. Okay, so there's a lot to talk about today. And I mean, there's a whole lot of Thanksgiving recipes that we need to get out on the table here to share with our friends around the country. <laughs> no, we'll come, to, we'll come to Thanksgiving in a little bit. But first, let's talk about what may be top of mind for many of our uh, participants today, and certainly for a lot of the news media in the country, um, the end game for the election. Uh, boy, compared to other years, you know, and I've been following this kind of thing for decades, as both of you have, this is the most complicated electoral end game. This is more complicated than 2000 in Florida, don't you think, David? Yes, definitely. Because yeah. in, in that, that time, it was just one state. It was 537 votes difference in some counts and everything hinged upon how that was gonna be resolved. But there's a whole series of uh, lawsuits and potential litigation which could potentially uh, trip up the certification or delivery of votes, electoral votes from several states, Pennsylvania among them. And I think I just saw today uh, that a court in Pennsylvania has uh, prevented the state from certifying its electoral count pending a hearing on November 27th. Have you followed that one, David? Well, the hearing started today. Oh, it did? Okay. Uh, yeah, it started today, and um, the, there was a number of people who were testifying, including Rudy Giuliani and his team, and I think they were going to present about 20 of their 80 uh, witnesses. And then there's also, I, think, I believe it's on Monday, Arizona will have public hearings mm -hmm. in the legislature, and Michigan on Tuesday. Now, one thing we've talked about here before is the fact that there is uh, a pending uh, legal issue which could certainly go straight to the Supreme Court, which is not what today's action was about, but the prior action had to do with the fact that the uh, Supreme Court of Pennsylvania had changed the ballot deadline from the one set by the state legislature. Uh, and the U.S. Supreme Court did not take the case because they were split at the time. They wouldn't need to be split now, but they haven't shown any uh, indication of taking it up. That case I could easily imagine going against the Pennsylvania Supreme Court namely telling them they had made a mistake in changing the legislatively uh, specified deadline for ballots, uh, since that's reserved uh, in the Constitution for action by the legislature. But even if that happened, it didn't seem like it would change enough votes to change the outcome in Pennsylvania. Some of these others, though, don't they have the potential, David, for a larger magnitude of vote shift? Well, I think that Pennsylvania does have that possibility. I mean, it depends on what you view as illegitimate. but. Mm -hmm. uh, Giuliana's view is that that alone would be sufficient to carry Pennsylvania. But their, their approach is that, plus the many other issues of uh, 
dead voters and there's just there's just you know there's like 12 different categories mm -hmm. of fraudulent questions uh not be, you know poll watchers not being able to see what's going on um people who are counting rewriting the ballots themselves um, including ballots that were mailed that weren't even folded around printed on a different kind of paper mm -hmm. uh, there are witnesses that claim that was it four o'clock in the morning or 2 30 or something that this truck arrived with all these other ballots they thought it was a food truck and it was, it was bags of ballots uh, so i think there's a whole number of things that they're looking at and it depends on i think the, the credibility of the evidence that they can bring i was struck earlier uh this week i guess on monday uh, when there were interesting statements from people like Tucker Carlson and Rush Limbaugh um, and some others, and Laura Ingraham saying that, you know, that they're getting kind of skeptical because there are these press conferences and the Bush, I mean, excuse me, the, the Trump legal team makes these big claims of fraud and then they're not coming up with the evidence. Um, but now in these court cases, especially in Pennsylvania, we might see some of the details, I think. Well, I think a lot of it, I mean, these are civil suits. And so uh, you don't want to tip your hand um, beforehand, especially with the press being so hostile. Um, and you know they're not litigating this in, in the public opinion. Ultimately, that will be part of it. But the key is how the judges view these, these cases. Yeah, that's right, because we're, this is not about voting and popular opinion. This is about you know, whether laws were or were not violated. You know, right. as just an ordinary citizen, I feel torn because I sure don't enjoy having all this uncertainty. And at the same time, if there are legitimate questions, it seems like we'd all be better off to have them addressed and either vindicated or uh, you know, rebuked by evidence rather than just wondering uh, what the facts are. So, uh, you know, in, in sort of a heuristic sense, uh, there's a great article, The Federalist, uh, called Five More Ways Joe Biden Magically Outperformed Election Norms. Mm -hmm. And they basically show that, you know, it's a satirical piece, uh, but they're basically showing that Biden's response defied all precedent because every, every possible predictor of what he should have gotten, he did not get, but then suddenly he got all these votes. So it doesn't add up from a, uh, the, for the people who study election precedents and trends. Um, Biden was not a first-rate campaigner. He was hiding. Um, I mean, there's anyway. I recommend the article. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty uh, intriguing it's one. It's a good article, and uh, there's a, there's other articles out there that raise skeptical concerns. It is possible. I think we have to acknowledge that uh, you know some people may have voted against President Trump and voted for Republicans on other lines. It's, mm -hmm. I'm sure we all know people like that. That so, could explain some of the discrepancies, certainly. Of it, yeah. As of now, of course, President Trump says he's fighting on, he's not going to concede, but at the same time, he's also now finally uh, given his blessing to going ahead with the normal uh, presidential transition protocols and courtesies. Uh, so um, that's underway. Um, hard to tell what to make of it all, I'm trying to think in very practical terms. Let's just say even if Pennsylvania uh, was either um, the, the litigation either turned around the vote there, 
the legal vote there or was inconclusive, that would just be 20. Uh, he'd still be over 270. You'd have to get mm -hmm. one or two, I think two more states in order for him to lose his 270. So it's really hard for me to imagine uh, that uh, the Trump uh, lawsuits could flip the outcomes on electoral votes in three states, let's say. It would, enough, it would be enough to split Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Nevada. Then that would push Biden below uh, the 270. It wouldn't necessarily give Trump the, the votes if it were just held in abeyance. Uh, right. So we really are a long way from being able to turn around the electoral tally as it stands now, but anything's possible. That's right. And there's an audit in, there's an audit in Wisconsin and yeah, Georgia is another possibility because Georgia, the legislature also, it wasn't the legislature, but the Secretary of State made a consent decree with the Democratic Party that changed the way that the vote went uh, that was not something done by the legislature. Right. Yeah, that's right. So I think just as a matter of, you know, being prepared and thinking ahead, this is not purely imaginative, but not typically in investigated. I want to think for a moment about what, what would happen in the event that these lawsuits either succeeded in turning around the tallies or at the very least blocked uh, the certification and delivery of electoral votes in, say, three states. Um, the U.S. Constitution actually allows for that possibility. You know, it, it, the Constitution doesn't cover everything under the sun, but it does give a lot of decision pathways for unexpected consequences. And the 12th Amendment and the 20th Amendment show how this would work out. So uh, mon bear with me monologuing for a moment here, but in the event that that happened, then according to the 12th Amendment, uh, the U.S. House of Representatives would be the one to make the decision for president, and they would choose between the top three electoral college vote getters. Uh, and so they'd have to choose between uh, Biden and Trump, because I don't think anybody else got any electoral votes this time around other than those two. Uh, and so in that um, case- We actually don't know, because there could be faithless electors. There could be. Yeah, there could be. You're right. right. That would be possible. And but then the House doesn't vote the way it normally votes. Yes. That's right. It votes by delegation, one vote per state. So let's say- it's California. Well, there's some Republicans, but there's almost none compared to the number. So all the vote of California, which is one vote, would go for the Democratic candidate. Right, exactly. But let's say some other state, I don't know, Missouri has a divided delegation, and but the majority of them are, they might be even closely divided, but if the majority are Republican, then that one state's vote would go for the Republican. Well, pr provided though, that all those Republicans in the majority of the Missouri House delegation right. vote, vote for the Republican candidate. Correct, exactly, right. correct. So yeah. what's, what's intriguing about this is that according to um, uh, both statutory and constitutional deadlines, December 23rd is when uh, the president of the Senate, uh, which is Mike Pence, receives the electoral votes, but they don't get counted until January 6th. Mm -hmm. In the meanwhile, on January 3rd, the new Congress uh, takes its seat according to uh, the 12th Amendment. And then, of course, the, uh, on January 5th, the Georgia election occurs. Then on January 6th, Congress counts the electoral votes. So it's really technically on January 6th that we'll find out literally. I mean, we'll know what they're going to be probably, but mm -hmm. we're going to literally find out, legally find out on January 6th. At that point, if nobody has 270, then uh, two things happen immediately. The House says literally, the Constitution says literally immediately the House votes 
to select a president from the, t the top three electoral college vote getters. Mm -hmm. At that point, um, it's, it's clear that the Republicans are not losing any seats. It's not clear that they're flipping any of the uh, state delegations. So it looks likely that they will still have their 26 delegations where they hold the majority. According to the 12th Amendment, right. uh, it requires a majority of the whole number to elect the new president. In other words, it has to be 26 votes to select a president. No matter, it doesn't matter who's sitting in the House, whether some of them are absent, they have to be 26 votes, not just 25. Right. Right. So there are 26 uh, House uh, congressional uh, Republican majority delegations. But there's some really interesting little tweaks in here, which I've been exploring recently. So you know, uh, each state is gonna get one vote per their representatives, but some states only have one representative because they have small populations. So for example, Wyoming, uh, Liz Cheney is the one representative. She controls Wyoming's one vote in the House for president should that come the case. Lynn Cheney has been at odds with President Trump. Liz Cheney might well be susceptible to the idea that somehow the popular vote uh, should be given more credence. I would disagree with her, but I think that's what she might feel. Easy, if she just abstains or switches her vote, suddenly there's no longer 26 votes for the Republican presidential nominee. Don Young, the single representative from Alaska, has been at odds with President Trump in a number, Trump in a number of ways. In, Ohio, in Idaho, there are two representatives. One is very pro-Trump. The other one said he believed Comey over Trump. Uh, those two could cancel each other out, and Idaho would have no vote at that point. So it's possible that on January 6th, when the House might, might vote, that there might not be uh, 26 votes for a president. So then what happens? Okay, here's what happens next. And interrupt me if, if I'm getting some of this wrong, gentlemen. But as I was just checking this morning, if, if that happens, then, of course, the House keeps voting. But in the meanwhile, the Senate has its job to play. The Senate selects the vice president at All the right. same time and immediately. And the Senate chooses them from among the two top electoral college vote getters. Right. Uh, the Republicans will um, possibly have just one in Georgia, but regardless, they have 50 uh, right now with currently Vice President Pence holding the you know, tie vote. If the Senate is ready at that point to choose the vice president, they have no obligation to choose the vice president who happens to be the running mate of the leading. That's right. And obviously, in the very earliest days of the republic, the president and vice president did not even run as a team. Right. That's so right. They, they did not. The election of Jefferson was an example of that. Indeed. Yeah. So, you know, looking at the Senate uh, with the current and maybe future Republican majority there, it's much easier for me to imagine all the Republicans voting for Mike Pence for vice president than a majority of senators voting for Kamala Harris. Uh, Harris is a much more you know, provocative, uh, incendiary figure than even Joe Biden, and certainly more than Mike Pence. Uh, it's easy to imagine the House being inconclusive and the Senate choosing Mike Pence as the vice president. And at that point, then, Mike Pence becomes the acting president per the Constitution, while the House continues to vote and vote and vote until they get to 26 for one of the candidates. In other words, it's not impossible that we could have President Biden and Vice President Pence at the end of a long process in the House and a short process in the Senate. Wouldn't that be something? Mm -hmm. Okay, but what if the House can never come yes. to 26? Right. Then does Pence succeed to the presidency? 
I believe that's what happens. There's some statutory rules that the Congress in the past years gone by that specify these things. But yeah, I'm pretty sure he's going to be the acting president during that interregnum regardless. He can put that on his resume. <laughs> At least there won't be any voter fraud in all these developments. That's right. Well, no, exactly. <laughs> but each of the 50 No mail-in ballots. <laughs> right. No, no mail-in ballots. Oh, no, no, because the Democrats run the House remotely. You don't have to vote oh, in person. That's true. In no, but you don't have people sending out ballots to people who don't qualify yeah. to vote. Yeah, we'll know exactly who's voting and exactly what their vote is. Right. This is not a secret ballot in the House yes. of Representatives. Thank yeah, goodness. but we don't know who's sitting by them. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, we don't know who's sitting at their remote control. Maybe. So, so you know, this is maybe outlandish, but given the uh, plausibility. Just kidding about those. <laughs> oh, yes, I know. Given the plausibility of some of these lawsuits uh, that are still underway, this outcome is not entirely impossible. And of course, Mike Pence might be in a position suddenly to have to select a vice president, uh, and he wouldn't have to select uh, somebody who had votes. He could pick whoever he wanted. So um, we need to stand by. And, you know, most of all, I think that we need to be glad that we have a constitutional document that foresees at least many of the permutations. And right. if we follow the specified pathways, we have a legitimate uh, system of authority and rule. Yes, it's, so, it's pretty amazing what the founders of the Constitution thought about. Uh, you know, they had no idea what America would be like today in 2020. Right. Founders and amenders. Yes. All these pathways, it's pretty, it's pretty astounding. It is. So the 12th Amendment was 1804. Um, the 20th Amendment was 1933. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm glad that the people who were not involved in today's disputes were determining you know, these uh, constitutional amendments because it really is totally separated in time and person from the outcomes. It really is, these are constitutional rules uh, for which we should be grateful on this Thanksgiving week, for sure. Um, Okay, I'm just going to turn the page a little bit here uh, before completely changing the subject. But uh, when President Trump is no longer president, if, if that should happen, I mean, eventually it'll happen, but if it happens sooner rather than later, uh, what's going to happen to all the issues that Trump stands for? Um, what about the Trump issue set? Will they, that still be valid or will people all turn away from the things that President Trump advocated? I think it will continue to grow, actually. I mean, if Trump is not visible, that'll be a negative part. But I think there are other people who are waiting in the shadows that represent some of these views, like Rand Paul and others, uh, as far as deregulation, cutting taxes, and ending foreign wars, and so on. And I think as even people who voted for Biden uh, in the last two and a half weeks or so uh, are learning what Biden wants to do, or what he's talking about doing, or what could happen, uh, I think they're having regrets and wondering what will America be like? Will they lose their guns? Will they right. have their taxes doubled? Will they have to stay shut down in their homes through COVID-19 and what have you? And uh, will the kids be out of school another year? Mm. And so on and so forth. So it's not exactly what, I mean, the reason why Biden didn't say anything when he ran was because they're afraid of, of actually saying what, his support is wanted. Just to follow up on David's point. So uh, Joe Biden was asked at his press conference, I know it's almost oxymoronic to refer to a Biden press conference, but anyway, he had one and a, a journalist named Bo Erickson asked him the following. Uh, the 
COVID-19 task force has reported that it's safe to go to school. Will you, Joe Biden, work to get the teachers unions to allow the schools to reopen for in-person instruction? Good question. And Joe, yeah, excellent question. Excellent question. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wouldn't answer. And he blew yep. up at the questioner. He said, why are you shouting this question at me? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the point, base, the basis sort of starting point here is Joe Biden is a functionary of the, of the D.C. swamp. It's the unions, it's corporate interests who want subsidies and protectionism. It's all sorts of crony deals. That's what he is. And he's always been that. And that's why he, they wanted to run. You know, a lot of the people want to support him. They wanted those deals back. And uh, the average person had no knowledge of this um, because they're not familiar with it. And there was some possibility of some of this coming out with the Hunter Biden revelations, but the media wouldn't cover it, so no one heard about it. So the the gentleman who is being uh, going to be the Secretary of Homeland Security, in the previous offices he's held, uh, he gave he gave an expedited service for certain immigrants that were skilled immigrants that certain companies wanted. In principle, I you know I think it's fine to want immigrants that can do certain jobs that you need in your company, but the thing that he was charged with was that he only expedited them for people who donated to Gore. What to Al Gore? And it was a scandal. Well, well what's the name of be, this man you're talking about? I can't really pronounce his name. It's Alejandro Mayorkas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mayorkas, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is this is cronyism. I mean, you can favor yeah. a, a more liberalized immigration policy of some sort mm-hmm. or some kind of merit that goes coupled to company needs or something like that. Those are legitimate arguments over these things. But to specifically only allow expediting of people that were political donors? No. This is the lowest of the low. So I think that's what we're looking at, picking favorites. It's what progressivism means in practice. Yeah, that's right. It, it's it's central planning. It's mercantilism. It's Yeah. So let's go to Yellen and some of the, I mean, uh, protectionism is going to still be there as a problem. I was listening yeah. to Ivan Eilen's broadcast interview with it on China policy just recently. And he said, look, after recessions, and we had the 2008 financial crunch, and we have the problems connected with COVID-19, democracies tend to adopt protectionist policies. Mm-hmm. And he says, look at how Hillary Clinton differed in 2016 from her own husband's administration. So we're going to have protectionism under Biden. It will be done with a smooth Davos-style ling- linguistic twist. but. Yes. We're going to have picking of winners and cronyism in foreign trade where they give advantages to the people that uh, are their favorites and pals. Yeah, and I think that that's part of the China story and and, right. and others. So some of that will continue to be. And, and, and Biden faces the fact that he is going to, you know, be, 
he faces a problem that he might be viewed as bought and sold by China. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we can already see in his saying that China should not have hegemony over certain islands in the South China Sea, mm -hmm. that he is taking a harsh anti-China or hostile to China stance. So we're going to have a continuation of that, which is a Trump issue, but we're also going to have a increased hostility to Russia. I think there's no doubt about that. Yeah, and I think this is sort of a third Obama administration too, yeah. but it'll be more overtly and sort of in your face, collusion, special interests. Yeah. I mean, the answer to the reporter's question from Biden is he's already answered it. He's already said that he's going to make a prominent uh, member of the teachers union, uh, yeah. secretary of education. That's right. So that has nothing to do with quality of education. That's that's rewarding people who supported him as part of this network of the swamp. There, there is, I mean, there are many worst possible secretaries of education. There's one whose name has been floated, who's the head of the school system in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. He's actually done a pretty good job. Uh, but all the other ones are nightmares. Yeah, that's right. A lot of the coverage so far of his pr prospective nominees <clears throat> seems to be of the uh, uh, nature of media pe people expressing relief and gratitude at the suave and establishment character of right. these individuals. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, right. They're not incendiary. Um, he's not yet announced any appointments for AOC, for example, or for Bernie Sanders. So people are saying, hey, everybody should just be comfortable. And I guess I'm glad that AOC is not being appointed. But at the same time, you can't help but wonder whether what we're getting here is a kind of, um, as David, I think, put it, uh, a establishment cronyism with a suave face. Well, it's part of the it's part of the administrative state, the deep state, and Washington normal. So Janet Yellen is an interesting case of this. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, so she was nominated, and you know, I, I think. Yes, we could have had somebody worse, but mm -hmm. you'll notice yes. if you read the stories that the people they quote as progressive spokespeople, I'll say, oh, she's good. And yeah. she was admonished by Mick Mulvaney back when he was a Republican congressman. That's right. For bringing up egalitarian things that the Fed should be trying to make everybody in the country equal financially mm -hmm. or in terms of wealth or something. And Mulvaney said, this is not your purview. You're supposed to have a stable money money system. You're mm -hmm. supposed to guard against unemployment. But your your job is not to produce some sort of economic uh, utopia. Uh, and you know, she defended herself and said, fine. But she's certainly a Keynesian. She's certainly somebody who wants artificially low interest rates. Mm -hmm. She's certainly somebody that has explicitly said she's for bailouts of uh, high spending, yes. you know, cities, states, mm -hmm. localities that uh, have, you know, need a bailout if they're going to survive. And well, the well, Trump's been, been in favor of artificially low interest rates. Yeah, yeah, job yeah. Well, there's for a it. continuity for you. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll say. That reflects his cabinet, too. Yeah. But, you know, it also shows with Yellen that there really is little, if any, distinction between the Fed and the Treasury. Yeah, yeah that's and she's going to work, so it's she's basically work the very closely with right. the, the head of the Fed. She's close to him, and she, of course, headed it herself. So, 
I mean, separated institutions with their own jurisdictions provide some security for the public liberty. But now if they're going to be kind of socially fused, that is worrisome. Well, fortunately, the Wall Street Journal endorsed Judy Shelton to be yeah. uh, picked to the Fed board. And that's still a and, possibility, and although still there a possibility. was a procedural glitch. And it may be that with Yellen and this other stuff, that will push some of the Republicans to vote for her after all. We'll see. Who knows? They've been very, very squishy on this. That's right. I do think that she would be a good appointment. Among the other people that uh, Biden has been talking about, Anthony Blinker, Anthony Blinker, is uh, someone to keep your eye on. He was in the Obama White House, the Clinton White House. Um, he is essentially been on the record as criticizing the Hong Kong protesters against China's national security measures. Um, he still supports the Russian hoax story. Um, he's pro-Iran deal, but he has this connection to Hunter Biden, too. He's renowned in foreign policy circles for favoring, promoting democracy yep. via boots on the ground. Oof. He still supports, he, he talks about Iraq as having been this great success story. Yes, there's a great tape of him right. saying that, look how everything has worked out fine in Iraq. Yes. Democracy. I, I, I was there in Iraq. I was part of the Iraq reconstruction effort in 2003, and it's a very problematic situation. That's right. So he's another nation builder, yes. internationalist, interventionist, like Hillary Clinton and so on and so forth. And like the George Bush administration. So Mike McFall, who was a colleague of mine when I was at the Hoover Institution, a former U.S. ambassador to Russia, points out as of great significance that Blinken created a group called the Phoenix Initiative to debate whether the Democratic Party needed a more robust national security approach mm -hmm. after John Kerry lost to George W. Bush. Right. So he is, I think we could say, a moderate hawk. Uh, I think we're not looking at Scoop Jackson here, but we're no, also but not, I think look, we're talking we're about not looking like George McGovern or anything like that. No, but we are talking about the Wilsonian tradition. Yes, we are. And exactly. I think what exactly. I think what's what fits with this is James Mad Dog Mattis's statement that he wants to end any sort of standing for America first in U.S. foreign policy, um, which, uh, of course, when when uh, Trump got elected, he had no idea who to bring into his cabinet and to the White House, and others made recommendations, many of which were. Uh, poor ones, and he was one of the poorest ones. Um, interesting enough, when Mattis so, so made I, this statement, I, he I was attacked. Slightly. He was attacked. Well, he's he's a he's a fellow at Hoover. Yes. Um, uh, he was attacked by uh, Edward Lutvak, Diana Rust, even Scott Adams. And there was many of the people who were supporting the America First foreign policy. Um, were didn't even hesitate to go after Mattis, and Mattis is an unreconstructed Wilsonian military man, basically. It's part of the post World War II foreign yes. policy consensus. That's I think right. That was clear, and that was why he felt uncomfortable during his tenure in the administration, and why the president and he ultimately had to part ways. I think uh, it's also significant that Blinken 
favored a military, a large military presence, invasion and overthrow in mm -hmm. Syria. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, which Obama shrank back from. Yes. And uh, so we'll see. I think we could go on to Avril Haynes, the mm -hmm. director of national intelligence. So this oh, is a new, a new uh, body that uh, sits over things like the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, the State mm -hmm. Department Intelligence Service, and so forth and so on. And it's not really clear what it does, but that's where it is. So she was uh, brought in by John Brennan when he became director of the CIA to be, he be you know, she was his protege. He named her as deputy director of the CIA because he wanted somebody like her to work with him as part of his team. Mm -hmm. And he is overflowing in praise with her. Uh, I think we could safely say that Brennan was uh, very, very troubling in terms of what he did during the Russian collusion narrative. Yeah, I think it's Went reasonable way to beyond think the he, evidence if, yeah, if he didn't that, push things yeah. that he might have even known were falsehoods, but he pushed because he thought it was for the good of the country or for the good of processes and people like him. Well, he's a professional deep state person and swamp creature. And he may have even been David the person who originated the Russian hoax. way than I do. <laughs> right. But anyway, uh, Avril Haynes is somebody that represents this John Brennan point of view. Mm -hmm. And we should not expect anything different from her. No. Uh, another person is Michelle Florno, who mm -hmm. is expected to be the Secretary of Defense. Mm. Uh, she has many, many ties to the defense industry or military industrial complex, depending on how you want to talk about mm -hmm. these people. She has a long personal history in defense policy, as military policy. This is no new territory for her. Mm -hmm. Indeed, the whole Trump, or sorry, the whole Biden transition team uh, is filled with people who are connected to military think tanks and military industry. Yeah. You know, speaking, what's speaking of the transition teams, the president pardoned Michael Flynn. Yeah. Today. Yeah. <clears throat> I saw Today. that. And mm -hmm. I fully support this. I think he was right now. So I served in the Trump transition in 2016. I was working on education policy, but I had personal friends who were working in the national security part of this. And so I observed what was going on and heard inside scuttlebutt on what was going on. I cannot say that uh, Flynn was always perfect or right or covering himself with glory during this transition period, but I think what he was gone after by the top echelons of the FBI was political. It was completely unwarranted. Uh, the, the arguments that were dug into and led uh, Attorney General Barr to want to drop the case were completely right in terms of this should never have happened. And uh, I support the president in pardoning him, whatever Flynn's flaws are. No, I you think know, that's right. From the man on the street's point of view, what's odd about this conversation is that many ordinary citizens, they have this idea in their heads uh, that the Democrats are anti-war and the Republicans are pro-war. Mm -hmm. But you know, looking at these facts and at recent history, 
it seems that both parties have been pretty much pro-foreign military engagement until the Trump administration. I think that's right. But there are other, you know, currents, uh, Robert Taft, uh, Calvin Coolidge, and others. Yeah, older Republicans. Right, mm -hmm. older Republicans. But there was, this, as Bill said, this post-World War II consensus of Pax Americana and that America was going to police the world and international agencies would be essentially an extension of that, funded by the U.S., controlled by the U.S. I want to say something positive about Anthony Blinken. Okay. This is a very strange thing, though. Yes. So Biden was famous back in the early days of the Iraq war, like 2003, 2004, for wanting to divide Iraq into three parts and make them independent countries. Hmm. I mean, I don't really favor the U.S. imposing this on Iraq, but it might actually be the kind of thing that might somehow stabilize the country. So we if you had a, a Kurdish part yeah. and a Shiite part and a yeah. Sunni part, um, Sunni Arab, Shiite Arab and Kurdish part, and Biden was for that. And it was not a completely crazy idea, even though the establishment treated it as, you know, oh, this is like Biafra seceding from Nigeria. We can never allow that. So I just, you know, one thing we're in search of here are some possible positive things. <laughs> I'm not saying that Blinken is insincere. Yeah. And he also was uh, uh, supportive of uh, Trump, some of Trump's work in Syria. Um, but by the way, Bill, we did a book a number of years ago called Partitioning for Peace by yeah, Ivan yeah. Eland on this subject. Right. And got a fair amount of attention for it, but then it was dismissed by the usual crowd and didn't go anywhere. So one of Averill Haynes's uh, claims to fame is doing the legal background on drone attacks. So drone attacks, I think, are something that we have to consider with number of thoughts in mind. One is they are a military attack, but often without any kind of declaration of war. Mm -hmm. So that's an unconstitutional form of warfare. It's practiced yeah. by both Republicans and Democrats. So it's not mm -hmm. this is a nonpartisan independent critique to be making of them. But certainly, uh, you know, George W. Bush practiced them. Obama hugely escalated them. And then mm -hmm. Trump went even farther. But anyway, she yeah. provided the legal background to that. And it's also, of course, led, as a lot of things do in warfare, to civilian deaths. Uh, so that's part of her story. I'm wondering whether we might be uh, ready to ask Bill to comment on some of the education policies uh, and personnel of a, of a Biden administration. Yes. So I did a little bit of thought earlier about some of the possible Secretaries of Education, another person is Carmel Martin. She was uh, head of education under Senator Kennedy, Ted, Ted Kennedy. She was his education policy person, and she was she had the same position that I had under George W. Bush. She was the Assistant Secretary for Policy under Obama. She's a very competent, uh, knowledgeable person. I would call her within the Democratic Party, a relative centrist, uh, she's a possibility. I don't think that uh, Linda Darling-Hammond, who headed the transition team, both for Obama and for Biden, 
uh, is she's a professor at Stanford. I know her not not well. I know her slightly. On basically a social basis, it's always been cordial to me. I really have almost no policy views in common with her. Uh, one major thing we differ on is that she thinks that teachers who get additional higher education degrees, like masters in teaching and all this should be paid huge amounts extra because they're adding to student success. I think there's really no basis for that at all. Uh, but anyway, we could go on and on about our differences, but she's very close to the teachers union. Now, maybe one of the teachers union people will be named to be secretary of education. I don't think that would be very good, but I think wow. many of them think they're more powerful as <laughs> the teachers union than they would be as secretary of education. So there's something to that. To do that. <laughs> I mean, to me, I've heard that uh, the two different heads of the major teachers unions might be secretary of education. But I mean, what would people say if a Republican president appointed the head of like Exxon or Mobile right. to be the Secretary of Energy, or you so know. So David Bowes made exactly this point. He said, "What if Raytheon, a Raytheon executive, was being made head of Secretary of Defense under a Republican administration? People right. would be screaming to high heaven, and yet they're giving the teachers a pass. It's like putting so the, you know I, the fox think, in charge of the hen house. Well, I mean, it that is, is, but but teachers are not viewed as corporate. Oh, but I think that I think there's a mistake here. I think the real uh, interest group struggle basis in the United States is between the people who benefit and are part of big government and mm -hmm. the people who are yeah. sort of sucked dry in order to support big government right. and to put up with the privileges that are granted by big government. And yeah. the and education department is a major cockpit of that struggle between the interest groups of big government and the interest groups that are victims of big government. So Biden has promised all sorts of lavish additional monies, including subsidize, federally subsidizing teacher salaries. Uh, he wants to pour money into special education, which, will, which is educating people with learning disabilities. This will already have a problem of distortion there where there's over-identification, where people realize they can get more money if somebody is labeled as learning disabled, even if it may not really be or may not be to a severe extent. So that, you know, there's all kinds of distortions and problems with that. Uh, Biden, Sanders, Unity Manifesto says they're going to diminish objective testing. This is really unfortunate because if we're trying to find out whether education or even some specific education policy does any good, we don't have any tests. They're given in a standardized form and test people objectively. We won't know whether they're learning anything or whether some specific thing helps them learn more. And, uh, you know, tests can be abused. They can be not well done, but their, their talk, which is, oh, we're going to study the whole child and we're going to figure in all their gaps and whatever. Look, when a doctor takes a patient, the patient may have a blood pressure problem or uh, an allergy to certain medications or whatever. Okay, you have to figure on that, but you don't change the standard of good health because of the background of the patient. Mm -hmm. And the same is true in education. You, you want to have the kid learn what's needed. And all so, so Rick Hanyashek is an outstanding K-12 education economist in the country. 
And he's shown that inputs, that is pour more money, pour more tax resources into education does not boost student achievement. You have to have configurations that boost rivalry, that boost competition, that put pressure on the system, on people, it can be private education, it can be charters, it can be opportunity scholarships, it can be a variety of things, it can be multiple pathways to getting degrees. It can be, we have a lot of this in higher education, but we don't have it in K-12. And you know, the more private, the better in all of that. But if we don't address that, if we just say, well, all our resources are gonna be to bring about racial equality or all our resources are gonna be to achievement quality, we're gonna miss the actual pressures that might lead to some of this happening. Uh, so they've, instead of, concentrating and I mean it was politically convenient but for the last decade or so people have said well we're going to help the most vulnerable we're going to help most far behind and that's how we're going to improve education and we've neglected the structure of education and how that entraps maybe to the benefit of the establishment it may be the advantage of the teachers union but it doesn't help the students. So Bill are you forecasting that uh, private uh, charter schools or private schools or home schools are going to be squeezed under an eventual Biden administration? Uh, I think, well, yes. So interestingly enough, um, the Obama administration was divided between at least the first, first term, between people who wanted to use the existing system to goad improvements through standardized testing and accountability and you know things like that to try to make the system work better and people who uh, just wanted to serve the unions and over time this egalitarian wave that we've seen political correctness wokeness social justice warriors all this stuff began right in the obama administration eating away at the Democrats who favored reforming and improving the system even, okay? And the unions took advantage of that egalitarianism and that critical race theory to anathematize opportunity scholarships or vouchers, charter schools, all, all competitive rivalry that the unions who love having a monopoly don't like. And so now, in the Obama administration and the Obama campaign and then the Biden and Sanders unity thing, there was nothing really about this. It's at all positive. They, they reluctantly acknowledge that there are some charters there, but they don't want any federal support for them, that they don't want any, uh, they view them as uh, predatory. They view, you know, they're against all for-profit institutions in higher education. Every egalitarian shibboleth is bowed down to in the Obama campaign, Biden campaign yes. materials. So they, it looks like the establishment is getting most of the high positions, but just beneath them or policing them or monitoring them are these egalitarian radicals, these right. agitators. So I call right. it kind of a strange de facto coalition between the establishment and the agitators. Mm -hmm. But the and scary the thing is that the have the ideas and they are policing and monitoring and pushing. Well, it's kind of like, um, I mean, this is an extreme analogy, but it sure reminds me of the ways that during the Soviet Union, 
every government entity had its formal head, but there were also party operatives. The commissars. Each, yeah, the commissars, right. and they were ideological policemen within each government entity. Mm -hmm. And so maybe what we're getting at is, is that the, the top tier are gonna be pretty acceptable, moderate people, but the, the next tier, the rising generation of the bureaucratic leaders yeah. in this administration may well be people who are you know, bred uh, to the bone on the woke ideologies of yeah. the day. And the other people don't really have any new ideas. So they're going to be accommodating the uh, people with the egalitarian overthrow ideas. So they're not going to get... It kind of reminds me also of uh, back when Jimmy Carter was elected president. I mean, here he was a, you know, a culturally conservative Southern Christian governor. Um, people thought he was a nice, moderate man. And he put some few moderate people in, but he really empowered all the former governed people uh, in administrative positions in the federal bureaucracy so that the Carter administration was kind of a nurturing ground yeah. for a lot of the more well, radical Well, the problem impulses. is there's only so many people and people have networks and they push each other. And uh, Biden has his own network of people. He's been in government forever. And if you look at all these people that we've already been talking about, they often have extensive personal relations with him. Yes. You know, I was the economist for the Foreign Relations Committee or something like that, and now look where I am. So well, it doesn't mean, though, that the next generation of people are not going to have horrifyingly counterproductive things when it comes to uh, actual student success and student achievement or taking away. So it's a one standard trope of these people in this doesn't just apply to the radical progressives, but even the liberals. Their thinking is, without us running things from the top and driving the whole system, there will be a race to the bottom. Everyone will let down their side. The kids will be left nowhere. We, at the top, at the center, have to control everything. There won't be rivalry between the states to have a better education. Instead, the states will do nothing without our guidance, without our whip hand. This is why the Obama administration called its initiative the race to the top. They believed that unless they were running everything, it would be a race to the bottom. One of this our participants is going to be present again. This also relates to uh, the insight that the economist Bruce Yandel had in his famous paper, Bootlegger on the so Baptist, yeah. Bootlegger Baptist Alliance. Right. Yeah. So you have an ideological, cultural narrative that is the veneer through which interest groups can maneuver uh, to get uh, credibility and to essentially cartelize uh, markets in their interest and redistribute this analogy to too, them. David, with, it, so, with the egalitarians right. being the Baptists. Yeah. But I couldn't see the unions as being quite rafish enough to be the bootleggers. No, I, I'm saying I think that the, well, the unions have a certain narrative. Yeah. I'm, thinking, I'm referring oh, yeah, to the ideological education activists you're referring right. to. Right. They're giving veneer Absolutely. to allegedly like create equality exactly. and opportunity right. and, and all the rest of it. Exactly. One of our participants is just sending me a note here saying, is it time for a defund public education movement, perhaps in response to a Biden turn in this direction? That's a good, good slogan. Well, part of that has already begun because of the reality of these schools being shut. Parents have to do something. And they're turning to private solutions, uh, creating their own pods and homeschooling groups and what have you by necessity. And so I think 
once they see that this is a greater threat, that's going to that's going to continue, and there's going to be all sorts of lawsuits. But you know, it's going to be uh, a tough battle because of the zealots running uh, the whole show um, and the establishment media essentially going along with it. It's going to be difficult for a lot of these parents. Let me turn quickly to higher education. So. In K-12, it's mostly a question of throwing resources into the pod, probably ineffectually, but to the benefit of the teachers and the administrators. In higher education, it's more of throwing money in to uh, help the upper middle class kid who's going to be a future part of the big government constituency. So they're planning to try and forgive debts. So the, the moderate, modest 10,000 per person program amounts to uh, $640 billion. The more extensive Schumer-Sanders program of $50,000 debt forgiveness amounts to $1.5 trillion, something like that. So they want to vastly subsidize the creation of their own constituency here. Yes because loosely speaking, the college educated are the voters and supporters of these big government causes. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think uh, we're, we're going to see efforts to increase. The, they're going to have political correctness. They're going to have racial quotas. They're going to just all going to have kangaroo courts for cases of accusations of sexual misconduct and assault. There's all sorts of things that were just over the top during the Obama years that were reined in. So after all, you do want to go after rapists, but you know, you want due process for everybody who's accused of something very, very grave. And so we're going to have efforts. Fortunately, the courts are going to try to rein in just automatically lynching the accused rapist, but uh, they're gonna, whatever they can, they're going to try and do, and they'll try and do it at least. I, I will say that Biden asked Congress to do the 10,000 relief. Many Democrats are saying he should, by executive action, do the $50,000. Unbelievable. So right. I give oh, Biden, I'm not here to know, only praise, praise Biden, but I have to give credit to him that he asked Congress to do this. And, it, and, and that's the correct thing under the American system to seek legislation. Yeah, either way, Bill, it's a massive subsidy. It is. To it's higher a education. terrible subsidy. Yes. I'm, yeah, I'm, not I'm only not, that, but it I'm incentivizes it, but bad behavior. Least, yeah. And it's just going to cover, it's just a bailout of these it's schools. It's a bailout. That's right. right. Yeah. That's right. We promised our participants that we would also talk about Thanksgiving a little bit. Yes. You know, it, it's related to all this because I am noticing <clears throat> and when I'm reading and among people that I know that uh, Thanksgiving is one place where it's hitting a nerve where the sort of administrative uh, control state is exerting its power over something that's a little bit more precious and sacred than usual. So. Uh, you know, I'm getting a bunch of comments from our participants today. Do you think <clears throat> someone named Nana writes in, do you think that banning Thanksgiving gatherings is a bridge too far? 
Good question. Uh, someone named Jimmy Anapa asked, what do you think about the curfews that are coming in during the Thanksgiving season? Yeah. Uh, is, is the crackdown on Thanksgiving going to be a bridge too far for a lot of Americans? What do you think, I think David? it is a bridge too far. And if you look at the map of the U.S. where these are happening, it's almost consistently in the blue states. Uh, in, in California, you've got, is it Illinois and New York? Michigan is probably the, one of the worst states. Maine, um, in Los Angeles, there's a ban on outdoor dining um, that was put into effect. And when the, the, um, the county was asked, what is the evidence for this? They said, well, we don't have any, but that's the best we could do. Mm. So there's no evidence that people dining has anything to do with COVID. And uh, this also relates to um, the work of a number of epidemiologists who created the Great Barrington Declaration to critique the hysteria over COVID-19. COVID-19 is basically being turned into sort of a COVID-1984 with people's liberties being trampled and mayors and governors just uh, uh, unleashing all these executive orders based on public health claims which are not based on science and certainly not based on the rule of law but at least they feel like they're doing something i would they're doing say... something but they're actually just hurting people i mean one of the good things about the uh the uh, uh great barrington declaration and, and people like jay Bhattacharya, uh, i guess it's pronounced it jay betacharya right. at stanford and the others that were involved in that is they're pointing out that you know what you need is uh, focused protection for people, not this blanket protection that uh, is not mindful of who the people are at risk are. So, it turns out that the death probabilities uh, for people uh, overall are 0.2 to 0.3%. Uh, and those that are higher you know, should be cared for, but to that most of the people should be left alone to lead normal lives and thank and having a thanksgiving dinner with your family and friends is a hallmark of that so i think one thing to bear in mind is that instead of these counterproductive edicts like the one about dining outside in los angeles uh they actually could have flipped it and said it's mandatory to dine outside in los angeles would have made a lot more sense if you're if you're Having a multi-generational Thanksgiving, I think you should be careful because if you have people over 65 who have diabetes or lung problems or heart problems or something like that, it maybe shouldn't be there. Uh, if you have a family of young people, I think that's, you know, completely normal. I think it's, you know, these, these governors who are political figures who say do this do that and then don't do it so we're talking gavin newsom we're talking uh the mayor of chicago we're talking nancy pelosi they just show us the elitist attitude of politicians and well you got to have your hair done friends. and you got to go to a fancy restaurant from time oh, yeah, to time and, uh, well, one hey. of, uh, the mayor lightfoot said well i'm the face of chicago of course i have to look good well it turns out in los angeles the evidence is pretty overwhelming that of course the it's probability of getting COVID-19 in government buildings yeah. is far higher than anywhere else. They should be. They should shut the government buildings down. 
They should, <laughs> everybody should think about, do they have windows that open? That's right. How much can they keep them open? Exactly. Do they have good ventilation systems right. with air circulation to the outside? That is so much more important, for example, in schools yes. than all the spacing and every two minutes washing Yeah, but the schools, hands. the probability of, of children getting COVID-19 is virtually zero. And the teachers cannot get it from the kids. It's very hard. Um, so uh, a lot of this, I believe, is really being used by the blue states to uh, keep people in fear and also considering the other agendas they have in mind, whether it's a Green New Deal right. or other things. That's right. Uh, They're making easy... it conditional. We won't open right. the schools unless you do X, Y, and Z. Right. And that fits and with the teachers. And please pay us even more, even though we're right. not teaching in-person classes. And even over video, we're not doing it at a regularly scheduled time. Right. And we're doing fewer hours and on and on. It's really, some of it is pretty outrageous. You know, right. what I don't get is that there are very reasonable, you know, suggestions, guidelines, recommendations, like you were just saying, Bill, you know, be careful of your elderly relatives and so yeah. forth in groups. But what I don't get is when people realize that some of these things are worth heeding, people, well, at least certain kinds of people seem to jump immediately to the conclusion that that means that government should coercively force people to comply with these recommendations. No. Why can't you have recommendations that aren't coercively enforced? I agree. Yeah. People with common sense. I mean, Well, part of it is, the, is this culture war yeah. between people who believe that people should be free to make their own choices and cooperate with right. others and have enterprise and Right. community organizations versus people who believe that either they or some select group should be in control and run society. And so the Cuomos of the world and the Newsoms and the others default to the latter. And they believe whatever the issue is, that's how you handle it. I want to and it doesn't really matter minutes. what the evidence might be to the contrary. That's their civic religion and civic duty. And they uh, you know, it's, it's an issue of pride and conceit, and it's a fatal conceit. I would like to spend a few minutes going back to the original Thanksgiving yes. in the 1620s. Right. So the pilgrims, so we have to distinguish a little bit in early Massachusetts history between the pilgrims and the Puritans. The pilgrims were ancestors of, uh, they were independent of the government, they stepped out of the Church of England to practice their own form of evangelical Protestantism. Mm -hmm. And the Puritans were people who stayed within the Church of England, but they wanted to make the Church of England into an austere form of Calvinism and make everybody, you know, people who liked fancy vestments, fancy altars, people who favored high church ceremonials to stop it and do it our way. Okay, they so that was pure, the purity. They want to purify the Church yes. of England. That's but keep name. it a monopoly. Right. Front, yes. Through public power. Through public power. Through public power. So, the, right. so, so the, the pilgrims came, that's the Mayflower Compact, which sets up a voluntary social contract for society, really better than what, what anybody has. But anyway, uh, they, uh, they, at the beginning, thought that the Christian way to try and run things would be to have common land, put all crops in a common storehouse, mm -hmm. feed people according to need and to the extent they could e equally, 
and they started starving. And the governor, in writing his narrative of this early pilgrim years, says that uh, young men, hardy, strong men, began objecting that older people with multiple wives and families were not doing any field work, and here they were out having to work really hard to benefit maybe five other people and who were slackers. So after the third year, and they, you know, they almost died from all of this, they went over to private property holdings and being able to work for yourself, of course, still being charitable as part of the pilgrim and general Christian view, still helped each other out, but basically they were working for themselves and their families. And then they really began to prosper. And so then they had real reason for Thanksgiving. Uh, that's right. I mean, the combination of private property as well as private charity, Christian charity in their case, was right. really an incredible combination. Right. right. So they, they created sort of a communal system originally. Yes. And because of the perverse incentives, it was a disaster. Yes. And as Bill said, uh, many of the people died from starvation, yep. disease, and so forth, and they finally right. realized that they couldn't put up with that anymore. Right. And so the first Thanksgiving was actually the celebration of that first harvest after they'd made these changes, and they shared it with Native peoples and who they'd gotten to know in the, in the meantime anyway. Um, so, uh, and, and the Mayflower Compact was a key part that led to the establishment of the American system of liberty and the rule of law right. and limited powers and so forth and divided and, powers. And Peter Wood has just written a book right. called the 1620 Project or Compact or something just 1620. like that. Just 1620. Yeah, just 1620. Yeah. And he celebrates this tradition of rights-based working together to try to uphold rights and uphold liberties and not this wrong-headed emphasis on slavery as somehow the founding of America's mm -hmm. heritage. Right. That's right. Slavery exactly. was there. It's a blight. Uh, it should be objectively written about, but it shouldn't be a consuming obsession that distorts history that leads to non-factual accounts that's right. And doesn't point to the pro-human rights, pro-individual liberty side of American history that eventually squeezes slavery out. Not only that, but the, the, the peoples in the Americas, so-called indigenous people, um, most of them had slaves. They would, many tribes would war against each other. They would enslave those that were conquered. Um, and so the view that there was some sort of harmonious uh, society of human rights is a myth. And uh, some tribes were better than others, clearly, right. but others were pretty darn brutal. And so this, this situation was the same worldwide. That's and right. it was the, uh, really the Judeo-Christian tradition uh, which came into being and drew on the Greco-Roman traditions of natural law that made the change and was responsible for the rise of the West in Europe and inspired America's founders in their documents and their intention to create a republic based on liberty.
So, so you know, in, in some Thanksgiving is worth celebrating because what was planted on American shores at that time, uh, in fact, was remarkable and um, best thing that we've seen for many generations of human history. Right. So I would just like to close my remarks with a few points. One is there's a book called Environmental Indian that talks about mm -hmm. some Indians, you know, being careful about things and some Indians just driving buffalo herds over the cliff, taking a tiny part of the buffalo, <laughs> wasting all the rest. So different Indians had different yeah, pro projects. Right. Some like the Apaches were unbelievably brutal and cruel. Some like the, the Cherokee Cherokees. were yeah. quite civilized. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Iroquois did have a system of federalism and pluralism that was unlike many other tribes. The Iroquois had their bad side, too. Mm -hmm. So it's just like other people. We shouldn't romanticize them. Yes. We should face reality. Right. And uh, But we should still thank God for our blessings. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Thank God we live in a free country. The same story was also in Africa. Uh, exactly. The, uh, uh, Lord Bauer, um, P.T. Bauer did a great book called uh, West African Trade, in which he showed that indigenous peoples in uh, those regions of Africa were actually quite sophisticated in their development of markets and property rights and so forth and prospered. Others were not. And so there's these lessons that people have to learn, but it's not based on race, it's not based on gender. It's based on ideas that we discover of universal principles. And that's essentially what we try to focus on at the Independent Institute. Absolutely. So this has been a really great conversation. Thank you both to David and Bill. I just want to point out that another thing to be thankful for, in addition to the fact that we have a founding that got some principles established in North American society, which have borne wonderfully good fruit over the years in spite of their shortcomings. Um, I'm also thankful that looking ahead to the new year, um, we've got some vaccines coming and uh, you know, the Moderna and the uh, Pfizer ones are 95, 90% effective. Uh, the AstraZeneca one is about 70% effective. You know, even if things aren't done perfectly in terms of distribution, they're gonna be distributed and uh, those vaccines will be uh, widely uh, administered. And we're going to, thanks to Operation Warp Speed and all the work that everybody else has done, uh, and even the great the big companies who had successful research projects, uh, America is going to come through this pandemic in the new year. And that's certainly something to be thankful for, too. Well, one of the reasons also, getting back to the Project Warp Speed, was to cut through the red tape of the FDA and other agencies. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so, that is an indication of what can be done if you don't let government dictate the terms and create these big roadblocks. Uh, and most of the roadblocks are there to protect interest groups instead of serving the public. Right. So Dan Henninger, columnist in the Wall Street Journal, wrote a great, short, accessible article for the uh, David Henderson edited Encyclopedia of Economics on drug lags. Mm -hmm. So drug lags are where the FDA prevents a efficacious drug, safe drug, from getting to the public. And, and you can see in Europe or other places where they're using it successfully, mm -hmm. but Americans don't have it and Americans are dying.
And one quick anecdote I might add to that is when um, the issue of hydroxychloroquine was being discussed back in the spring, um, Trump endorsed it. And as a result, that made it politically incorrect. And so world culture immediately seized on that as a danger. But all the evidence still says that it can be very effective uh, primarily in the early stages of COVID infection. So we need to depoliticize de a lot of this and get away from this cancel culture tendency that wokeness should be the criteria instead of reason and goodwill and uh, ethical standards. I thank everyone for their participation today. I invite our participants from all over the country and some overseas uh, to always turn to our website, independent.org, for resources on this and so many other topics. Uh, we give you what you need uh, to have a sound assessment of many of the contending views on public policy today, independent.org. Uh, we're grateful for your support, too. We thank ThinkSpot for being our partner uh, in this broadcast, this live stream. And I thank David Thoreau and Bill Evers. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, Graham. Take care. Please come back in a couple of weeks for the next uh, broadcast of the Independent Outlook from the Independent Institute here in Oakland, California. And have a happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Take good care. Bye-bye. <laughs>